Um, I, want, I want to talk to you today about what's quite a dangerous topic, um, and that's releasing the apostolic. So if that word doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about that. Um, hopefully by the end, everything will become clear. But I think God wants to release this particular gift more into your church. You know, one of the things that's really important to me is that, that I am active in reaching out to people and telling them about Jesus and seeing them become Christians, that I personally am active in doing that. The, uh, the problem for me is that I'm, I'm a pastor of a church, I'm a pastor of a busy church, and, and most of my work involves people. And as you've discovered, my family life has, has been quite demanding over the last few years, and so... I'm actually an introvert personality. Okay. It may not seem that way, but I am. Um, for me to relax, I have to be away from people. And so I realized a few years ago that actually when it comes to mission and me being involved with other people and, and, and telling them about Jesus, when it comes to mission, I don't actually have the emotional capacity to join the cycling club or the bowling club or the golf club. I, I don't actually have the capacity. I don't have the time particularly. I certainly don't have the emotional energy to sort of have another group of friends outside of church. And so what I decided to do was, I thought, I'm sure I could find some people who I can ask a simple question of. And it's this. It says, do you fancy meeting up to explore more about Jesus? I'm sure I could find some people whom I could ask that question. And, you know, let's, let's sort of bypass the cycling and the bowling and the golf thing, and let's just go straight to the heart of the matter. And so that's what I've been doing for several years, and uh, seen a number of people come to Jesus by that means. And actually, uh, not everybody who works in our church building is a Christian, which is great because it means that I'm continually meeting and working with people, um, who haven't yet come to Jesus. So, some of the people who, who work in the social action charity aren't Christian. Some of the people who work kind of looking after the building aren't Christian. Uh, one, of the, one of the guys on the Castlegate staff, the, the, the building staff, I asked him that question. I said, do you fancy meeting up and exploring more about Jesus? And he said, yes, I do. And so we did. And we, Actually, we're both quite busy. I'm busy, he's busy. And we, we sort of met up a few times, but we'd had a bit of a pause and then the turning mission came along that we were hosting in the Castlegate that many of you were involved in. And uh, the team were there, and uh, they found out that this guy, Davey, wasn't, wasn't yet a Christian. And one of them led him to the Lord uh, using the sort of turning prayer that we were all taught to use. And he said he didn't want anyone to tell, tell me. He wanted to tell me himself. And a couple of days later, he happened to catch me in. And he said, do you know, Ian, it was like amazing because um, I had no expectation at all. So I was going to work in like five minutes. And this lady came by, she said, you, we prayed this prayer. And he said, it was like I was being washed on the inside. And then this thing came over me. And I said, well, that was obviously the Holy Spirit. This thing came over me. He said, do you know what? I feel like I've started a brand new life. That's what he said, word for word. Amazing, I, I cried. And uh, we're now sort of meeting up more and um, 
I'm, I'm beginning to disciple him. And maybe you're here today and you've, you've yet to come to that place where you've decided to follow Jesus and have a brand new start to life. Well, make to, maybe today's your day. Don't go home for lunch. You know, you must be interested or at least, you know, pressurized to have come here. Don't... <laughs> can I urge you, don't go home for lunch until you've come to Christ. Come and, come and talk to me. I'll, I'll help you. And, um, you know, you're working your way, I think probably slowly, through the book of Acts, are you not? And we've arrived today at, at chapter to 20, and I'm, I'm sure you've met the Apostle Paul as part of this. And he was another person who had this amazing new start to his life, unexpectedly met Jesus, experienced this complete change within, so much so that he changed his name from Saul to Paul. He was like a new person with a new name. And he saw many, many, many people come to Christ in city and town all around the Mediterranean. And um, here's a map of where he went. And um, man, he went to a lot of places. And in all the places he went to around the Mediterranean, he saw people come to Christ. Unless we get defeated and sort of self-condemned, let's remember that the conditions in the first century around the Mediterranean were totally ripe for Christian faith to explode onto the scene. They were totally ready to become Christian. You know, there was a large Jewish population in every city, in every town around that Mediterranean rim. There was a large Jewish population. Uh, many of the Jews after the exile didn't go back. And they were in, all, in every town. And they were, they were highly regarded often in their, in their cities, usually by thoughtful women because of their monotheistic belief and their very high value on family life. You see, the government and the culture and the media were all polytheistic. It's very difficult for us to imagine what that's like. Everything else, polytheistic. And polytheism does not encourage family life and sexual morality and faithfulness in marriage. And so, if you were a thoughtful person in first century Mediterranean life, you would look at the Jewish communities and you think, they've really got something. And so, there's a, a Jewish community in every town, in every city, and around them there are converts to Judaism, and around them there are people who are maybe not embracing the Jewish faith in its fullness, but very, very sympathetic to monotheism and to their teaching. And moreover, the entire Jewish world had been swept by the John the Baptist revival. You do know that John the Baptist had bigger personal impact than Jesus, don't you? Bigger personal impact. His influence was felt right round the Mediterranean world. In every town, a Jewish community was expecting the Messiah to come. They'd repented of their sin and they were waiting for God to save them. So in every single city that Paul went to, there were people who believed the Bible, people who believed in the one God of Israel, people who believed in, the, in, in turning to God and God coming to save them. They were all there. And that's a great place to go and announce Jesus. Because they were ready. And 
that's what happened. Thousands of people came to Christ. And in Acts chapter 19, we see what happened in this great city of Ephesus, which is now in, in modern Turkey. And it would appear that over a period of a few years, thousands came to Christ in that city. Thousands. The impact was so big that the economy of the city changed. In Ephesus, there was a wonder of the world, the, the, the Temple of Artemis. It was a huge, spectacular building. And around it was a great merchandising industry. Like, you know, there were people making Artemis artifacts and selling them. It was big, big, big money. You know, you can forget Newcastle shirts for 100 quid. This was, this was more than that. And then, thousands of people come to Christ. And they begin to realize, people in the city begin to realize that this whole temple stuff and this merchandising stuff is actually dark. It's actually unhealthy. And they, they don't just stop buying it. They start trying to sell it. They start chucking it out. You know, eBay would have hundreds of, you know, secondhand Artemis artifacts. And the, the economy of the city starts to collapse in the artifact industry. So much so, there's a riot. Well, nearly a riot. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant story. Well, Acts 19 is one of my favorite chapters. And, uh, and thousands of people have come to Christ in the city. And this is the context of Acts 20. Breakthrough in the city. A large church has been established and Paul has been teaching people non-stop for, for, for several years. And you think, isn't that enough? Wouldn't you be satisfied with that? Would, would, would you be satisfied with that? A large church, a riot, and, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people wanting to be taught about Jesus. You think, man, I, that's enough. I can, you know, I can put my feet up now. But what we find in Acts 20 is that Paul's vision and calling are greater, far, far, far greater even than that. So let's read a bit of Acts, shall we? Let's read a bit of Acts 20. Uh, when the uproar had ended, that's the uproar of the riot, okay? When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye, set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Titius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. You know, communications were very, very different then, weren't, weren't they? And for somebody of sort of Paul's uh, standing and income, it was basically either walking or sailing. That's, that's how it worked. And uh, as we follow Paul around the Mediterranean, there are just so many different places. We see churches, so many different places where he's been to. Here's 
here's picking it up again on verse 13, because you've done the bit in the middle. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He'd made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And the next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. And the day after that we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day we arrived at Miletus. And Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So many different places that Paul has gone to and established churches. They're there in Macedonia and Greece, and he wants to go to Syria. There are churches there that he's involved in. He's got people working with him from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and the province of Asia, which is a sort of the middle section of Turkey. And on this trip, they go to Troas, uh, which is where Eutychius falls out the window, and you've, you've, had a, you've had a good look at that. And they go to Assos, they go to Mytilene, they go to Caius, they go to Samos, and then they're at the Miletus. And that's where the elders of this big church in Ephesus come to meet Paul. And Paul has this vision okay, for establishing churches everywhere. That's his vision. He's not content with what God has done in Ephesus. Large though it is, effective though it is, uh, challenging though it is to the culture of the city, Paul has a vision for establishing churches in cities and countries and islands and towns. Paul has a vision and a calling to establish churches everywhere. It's a huge thing that's living inside of his heart. And here's a question. Okay, here's a question for you good people. How big is your vision? How big is it? How big is your vision? Well, let me ask you another question, a bit more difficult. How biblical is your vision? How biblical is your vision? Are people going to march on Regent Chapel because they're annoyed at how effective you've been? I mean, wouldn't that be a great day? You know, to see people marching on the chapel because of what's happened to the economy of the Northeast. You know, our context is different and we have to be careful with that. Otherwise, we might go down a bit of a gloomy corridor. But your vision needs to be biblical. And the vision painted in the book of Acts is of churches everywhere. That's what's beating in the apostle's heart. That is the biblical vision. That is God's heart. You know, how big is your vision for Tyneside? How big is your vision for North Shields and Peter Lee and Concert? Do those places and the people who live in those places have a space in the heart of Regent Chapel? It's a very, very important question. It's a very challenging question. Or how big is your vision for Norway? Or Spain, or Portugal, or Peru. How big is your heart for the world that God loves? You know, this, 
this apostolic vision for churches everywhere, for churches that thrive, for churches that grow, for churches that reach out to those around them, but for churches that then reach out even further into the world, that is the biblical vision of church. Of churches everywhere, of churches being caught up with God's mission to save the world. Now, the apostolic vision is the vision of John's gospel. God so loved Gosforth, Regent Chapel, yes, but no, bigger, bigger. God so loved, you've got it outside, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know what? God loves the world. Do you know what? God loves the world. Well, that wasn't very loud. (laughs) Turn to the other person and say, louder and more authoritatively, God loves the world. God loves the world. God loves the world, my friends. Habakkuk has this vision. Habakkuk has the apostolic vision. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And the last time I looked at the the sea, it was covered in water. Isaiah has the apostolic vision. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is the biblical vision. This is the apostolic vision for churches everywhere. And what you see as the journey through the book of Acts is that that starts to become a reality. And it starts to become a reality because the apostolic gift is released. The way it becomes a reality is that God gifts people who then go and make it a reality. And the two heroes, the apostle heroes of Acts, obviously Peter and then Paul. You know, churches don't get up in the morning and reach out to those around them for Jesus by themselves. You have to release the evangelistic gift in your midst. Churches don't get up in the morning and study the Bible and understand what it means. You have to release the teaching gift in the midst of the church. And dare I say it, churches don't get up in the morning and care deeply for one another. You have to release the pastoring gift in the church. Churches don't get up in the morning and self-organize. I've discovered this to my cost. You have to release the the administrative gift in their midst. And the same is true of the apostolic. Churches do not get up in the morning and start reaching the world and trying to establish churches everywhere. The way it happens is you have to release the apostolic gift in their midst. And in Acts, as you journey through Acts, it does take several years to get going. But by the time you get to Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are set apart for the work to which I have already called them. 
They already knew that God was gifting them in this way and they had to get on with it. And the moment of release comes in Acts 13, they start getting on with it. And they go across the creek and they, they nip across to Turkey and it all gets, it, that map starts happening. And everywhere Paul goes, churches start. Everywhere Paul goes, churches are strengthened. Everywhere Paul goes, churches are encouraged. Everywhere Paul goes, Churches are caught up in God's heart to reach the world. The apostolic is released. And Paul is not the only one. This gift gets multiplied into many people. See, that raises the question, okay, what does the apostolic do then? And if you want another book recommendation... This is another old book. It was written in 1911 by a high Anglican missionary to China called Roland Allen. Paul's Missionary Methods. He says, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. It's a bit of a dull read. So if you're looking for an exciting, like, woo, kind of a book, don't read that one. But it's, it's very, very thorough. And it caused an absolute storm when it was published. Because this was his argument. He said, what did Paul do? He went and put a church wherever he went. And then he went back and he strengthened the churches that were there. And then he then went back again and he, he brought them out into the world mission. That's how world mission happened. By the establishing of churches everywhere who were all caught up in world mission. And... What the apostolic does, well, number one, it starts new churches. It's like, duh, duh. if you're going to put churches everywhere, you're going to have to start some new ones that don't exist at the moment. And uh, I could think of a few countries that need a few. And I, I, I certainly know that the Northeast needs many more, many more. And, of course, to start a new church, that requires several things to happen. Evangelism needs to happen. People need to come to Christ Nurture and discipleship of those new believers needs to happen. They need to be nurtured in the faith. They're just babies, really, and they need to be taught their new faith. And then teaching to this new community that starts to be established, because teaching is not just telling us what to think, it's showing us how to live. You know, the doctrine of grace is not something just to agree to. We are to live graciously. That's what the doctrine of grace is for, to make me a gracious person. And those are the sorts of things that start the church. People come to Christ, they get nurtured, they get discipled, and then they start to live. The whole community starts to live in a Christ-centered way. That's one thing that the, the apostolic gift does. Another thing it does is train new leaders for those churches. Let's go back into Acts 20 and read a bit more of this. Look what's happened at Ephesus. We're picking up at 18. When they arrived, and these are the leaders from Ephesus have come to Miletus, which is, which is no fair journey, I have to say. Uh, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, do you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you? I have taught you publicly and from house to house. 
And I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. But now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement, they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's a wonderful wonderful speech. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. In Ephesus, there is a group of leaders who don't need Paul. That's the message. There's a group of leaders who have been so diligently trained and discipled, and it's day and night, Andy. It's day and night. It's not once a fortnight. It's day and night. With tears, there's a whole group of guys who are so effective now, they don't need and that is really something. That is the apostolic gift at work in the local church, raising up leaders who can then carry the whole thing. And this is not a small church, this is a very large, city-shaking church. But in three years, a group of leaders has been so trained that they can take the church forward now. And Paul says, guys, that's it, job done, not coming back. It's an enormous thing. So that's the apostolic again. Starting the new churches, training the leaders for those churches and releasing them. And then third thing you see going on in Paul's life is he releases leaders to serve the churches in the apostolic way. We've already looked at this in, in Acts 20. Uh, he's accompanied by all these people. He's accompanied by Sopatar. Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Titius, Trophimus. This is an international team of guys from different nations and cultures all serving these new churches together. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. 
This is not one man building his own little empire and ministry. This is, an, uh, this is the apostolic gift releasing as many other people to serve these new churches as he possibly can. It's great to see. It's impressive. It's wonderful. And you know what? You get exactly the same from Paul in the book of Romans. I don't know if you've read Romans 16 recently. In Romans 16, Paul names no fewer than 35 co-workers by name, 12 of them women. He says, you men and women have worked alongside me, serving all these new churches around the Mediterranean. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. This is not one man establishing a personal empire. This is the apostolic gift being released and people being caught up into a vision that's bigger than all of them. That's what's going on. And the fourth thing, just to mention, is this. The apostolic sees both suffering and breakthrough. Now, on the one hand, we get this wonderful resurrection from the dead in the middle of an all-night teaching seminar. I mean, it's like, what's going on there? You know, both of those things are strange. The all-night teaching seminar with packed full of people and the resurrection from the dead. They're both miracles, in my opinion. And they get, there's these breakthrough things. And yet, on the other hand, Paul says this, look, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing. He says this, I know in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I think of my life as worth nothing to me. It's, it's, it's seeing the breakthrough and living the, the suffering. Very Christ-like. Crucifixion and resurrection in the same lifetime. This is not a triumphalistic man effortlessly gliding to the next success. That's not how his life works. This is a man, yes, seeing the breakthrough of God, but also suffering under siege, in battle, in grief, and knowing that it's only by God's hand upon him that these churches are being established. So finally then, this, if that's what the apostolic is, why do we not see more of it in the northeast of England? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Why are we not seeing this more in the northeast of England? This is the biblical vision, churches everywhere. This is the biblical methodology, release the apostolic gift to capture all those churches and to get them going and to get them going in God's mission and heart for the world. That's the methodology, the biblical methodology. Why don't we have this dynamic relationship between the churches and the apostles in the northeast of England. And the answer, it seems to me, is that the apostolic so easily goes wrong. Now, we know that churches go wrong as well, don't we? We know that churches lose vision. We know that churches lose direction. You know, there's a whole denominations in our nation have kind of lost the gospel, really. We know that happens, but the same problem exists at the apostolic level. It can easily go wrong. And what I want to do to finish is just show you uh, four things where I've seen it go wrong and contrast that to Paul in Acts 20. Where does the apostolic go wrong? 
Well, number one, it becomes institutional. It becomes institutional. Now, I, was, I became a Christian in the context of the United Reformed Church. My first pastor in Jasmine United Reformed Church, Malcolm, was a lovely, lovely pastor. He, it was, church was like family to me. It was, it was a, when, um, when we were married, we'd only been married like a, a year. A number of things all happened on the same day. I passed my driving test. Heather graduated. And Heather's brother had a birthday down in Yorkshire. And I said to Malcolm, Malcolm, we'd love to go down and celebrate Heather's brother's birthday. Can I borrow your car? I'd passed my test the day before. He lent me his car. And I drove all the way down to Yorkshire and back the next day. It was family to me. And then Malcolm took me to what was called the district council. And the district council was the apostolic bit of the United Reformed Church. It was the bit that was there to, to look after the churches and care for the leaders and maybe even start new churches, although it didn't seem to be doing that very rapidly. And I went there, and it was horrific. It was points of order, votes, Mr. Chairman, people having public rows with each other. I thought we were family. I thought we were like brothers. I thought, we, I thought you were like sons and fathers. And what are we, what's this? And it had become institutional. I said, I'd never want to go there ever again. Paul is not institutional. Paul the Apostle is not running a quasi-local government institution with committees and stuff like that. Read this. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They wept. They embraced him. They kissed him. I mean, district council. <laughs> That's the apostolic. Not an institution. Not local government. Family. That's where it goes wrong, and, and that's why it stops working. Here's another one. Ego. Ego. I sadly have seen several apostolic people fall over under the weight of their own ego. It's been so big, poof, they've crashed. And the problem is, if you see being a leader, particularly an apostolic leader, means that everyone else has to serve you, you've got it completely the wrong way round. The apostolic leader is there to serve everyone else and bear the burdens, not just of their own life or their own church, but everyone else's as well. Here's Paul again. Paul lays down his life. He's not ego-driven. He said, look, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you for the first day I came into the province of Asia. I serve the Lord with great humility. Paul isn't doing this to stroke his own ego. He's laid that down long ago. God's killed that off long ago. He is there to be like Jesus to these people. And yet the apostolic goes wrong because of ego. Here's another one. Here's another one. Control. Control. You know, the, the apostolic leaders, can, can, and I've seen this too often, can see themselves as like the CEO of a kind of mega church organization. It's completely wrong. 
completely wrong. They're somehow in charge of everything. That is not how Paul worked. This is what he says to the Ephesian elders. He's, he's releasing them. The whole point of this speech is, look, guys, he's not just saying, goodbye, I'm never going to see you again. He's releasing them to God. He doesn't say, I'm going to remain in charge. I need to sign off all the major decisions still. He says, no, he says, look, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. He doesn't say, look, I made you a leader, even though he was very involved in doing that process. He said, God has made you the leader. God has done it. You are not accountable to me. You're accountable to God. You're not serving me. You're serving God. This is not CEO speak, is it? And he says, look, the church is not mine. The church is God's church, bought by the blood of Christ. And too often the apostolic's gone into control and not released. Church leaders are not middle managers to chief executive apostles. That's not how the New Testament works. It's completely the other way around. The apostles are the servants of the leaders. And the church leaders have been appointed by God and the church belongs to God. So there's a few thoughts as to what has gone wrong. But, man, God wants churches everywhere. He does. God's method is to release this gift amongst the churches so that that whole process can get started and be fruitful. Now, health warning. Embracing this is dangerous and costly. It's much, much easier to be a nice little church just for yourselves. Much easier. And for the apostolic gift to be released, everybody needs to say, yes, that's what we want. And we're going to give to it, we're going to pray for it, we're going to support it. When people step out from us to start these new churches, we are going to step up we're going to step out to see more people step in so more people can step out so we can step up. It's, we get the whole thing starts to move, you see. But that needs everybody to say yes. This isn't just about one or two people saying, yes, I'd like to maybe plant a church. No, this is about the whole church saying, yes, we embrace this gift, we embrace this heart, we see this vision, and we are aligning ourselves with the God's heart for the world. So, question. Are you aligning yourselves with God's heart for the world? You're still alive. The band are going to come back, we're going to sing. You'll be glad to know. But if you want to say yes, let's just take a moment. you want to say yes to this vision and to this gift, then why don't you stand with me? Why don't you stand with me? If you want to be an Acts 19 church and an Acts 20 church, 
Lord, I want to lay my life down. I want to lay my life down, Lord, for you. Jesus, I want to pray for this church that you would release the apostolic gift in their midst and that every heart, every life, every person would be touched and changed by it. That, Lord, this wouldn't just be a few people, this would be a heartbeat of the church. That the church would know we are on a world mission. That that would have real expression in Tyneside and the nations. And that gifted people would rise up in this church and that they would be trained and that they would go, that new churches would be established, that more gifted people would come into this church, that they would be trained, they would step up to take the leadership of this church, others of them would go, that you would begin to release this dynamic to this church, Lord. There'll be the first next church, then, there's, then, then three more. And all through that process, the church would grow and be strengthened. And that gifts would be released, Lord. And that from the youngest to the oldest, that heart would beat with your heart for your world. And it wouldn't just be God so loved the world, he sent his son. It'd be God so loved the world, he sent Fiji Jack. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Please have a seat. <coughs> Some of you may recognize this. Um, feel free to join in if you wish or just listen. <coughs> 